0: You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Three Makes Baby podcast. I have a special episode for you where I get to talk to not just one person, but a couple. That is has been on this fertility, infertility journey for a while now. I have, um, and I'll, I'll let you share your names and kind of a little bit about your story in a minute. But I think this is so important because couples uh, are impacted by infertility and we don't often get to hear from both, both of you. And so it's really great. Um, and I think that you know when I talk about infertility, I always say it's a couple's issue. It's not one or the other. It impacts both of you in the relationship as well. And many people do talk to me about how infertility has impacted their relationship, both, you know, challenging and put a strain on it, but also brought them closer. So um, I can't wait to hear from you both today. So I want to let you introduce yourselves and, and then we can just get going here.
1: Yeah. Hi. So I'm Renee Cobin. I've um, been married to Tom, uh, what, 10, uh, it'll be 11, 11 years, 11 years uh, this May. Yeah, Yeah. and so um, we uh, we live in Dallas, and uh, we we bought a house back in 2011, and you know wanted to wait for kids until um, my career had really um, gotten to a stable point, and we started trying back in 2015, just really casually, and you know at the time we didn't we didn't really have a good foundation on. what it meant, you know, what infertility was, what it truly meant, and when to seek help. And so we tried off and on um, until 2017, um, and it was really at the urging of Tom that we we made an appointment with um, a reproductive endocrinologist.
0: Yeah, well, what was Tom, what were you um, noticing or thinking when that you made that recommendation?
2: Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think taking a step back and looking back at that time, you know, we we had been trying for a while and I don't think we had put it together because uh, we had, you know, been off again and on again in terms of trying because we had switched job roles and we wanted to give time um, for that to sort itself out and be in a good spot. But I think it became clearer and clearer that there was something wrong to our, you know, our PCP. And uh, I think we were, 32, or probably 32 at the time, Um, and and asking questions about, you know, how long should this take, we haven't been able to get pregnant, we've been consistently trying, Um, and while the PCP, you know, gave us kind of um, generic advice of, oh, just keep trying, I felt pretty strongly that something was wrong, and so uh, really trying to encourage Renee at that point to take the next leap to, to see some professional help.
0: Yeah. It's good that you trusted your intuition with that. And, you know, when, at this point, did you feel, this? you know, that the stress of this was already getting to you or, you know, how did you, you know, early on, how did you respond in, as in your relationship to that? I, I was
1: way more stressed than I was about
2: it. Okay. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was for sure stressed. Um, I think that manifested in you know, because I think I brought it up to Renee and, and uh, initially had the discussion on, you know, seeing a reproductive endocrinologist. And, you know, she acknowledged my discussion, but didn't take any active action. It just wasn't a priority for her. Um, and so that was really frustrating to me. And so I escalated, you know, the conversation over the next month. Still no action. That was increasingly frustrated. So I went ahead and took the step and I said, you know what, <clears throat> I'll go ahead and schedule an appointment. I have no idea who we want to see. Um so I did. I just literally Googled it, spent next to no effort on any research on um who we should choose. And that was enough of an instigation where uh Renee then said, Hey, I definitely don't want to see that doctor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now now that you've forced me yeah. now, I'm gonna, you know, get involved yeah. and make yeah. my yeah. decisions. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry. Uh, I was just really quick. I was
1: under the care of the endocrinologist at the time. And, um, I really told her our concerns and she was the one that gave us our
3: recommendation.
1: And, mm-hmm. uh, I made, I made the appointment we researched, you know, starting to learn about start scores, got way overwhelmed. And so said, okay, let's make this appointment and go
0: from there. Yeah. So Renee, you sound a little bit farther away than Tom. I can hear Tom pretty well, actually really well. Oh, sorry. And then you sound a little bit more like you're about, I don't know, six feet away, like you're social distancing from the phone. <laughs> Is that better? (laughs) A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So I know that when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about the long term look at infertility and how that's, you know, different than maybe some of the other stories we've heard on the podcast for people that have been through it, going through it for maybe just a year or two. You guys have been doing this now for five years. Um, Tell me how that's different and tell me kind of that evolution. Uh, of yeah. going through this for so long.
1: So certainly, so the first five years um, were really um, well. First five years more in um, the, the first. The first two years were just us trying, um, you know, just just as a couple with no intervention. Um, I really actually try to stay away from the term naturally. I feel like mm-hmm. it. Um,
3: yeah,
1: it's, it's hard when you get to the infertility stage. Um, and when we started going to the RE, we were in, we were pretty confident, um, you know, they couldn't find anything wrong. Um, we were, our diagnosis officially was unexplained. Um, and we are fortunate to have, uh, insurance coverage for IVF. We did, um, yeah, it's, you know, I know it's not, not the usual, um, so, you know, we went through six months of testing, making sure, you know, we, we were doing everything that we could. And that was really when I started to feel like the increased just pressure and I would, you know, you get your cycle. And then um, I remember the last time that I got my cycle and uh, before we, we decided to, to move to the IVF stage and that really started to kick off like, oh, this is, this is going to be heavy. And, you know, when we, we, so we transitioned to IVF in uh, January of 2018 and that's really like, that's when the anxiety and grief really started and we were like, oh, this is, this is big and scary
3: Mm -hmm. and
1: we don't know what this is going to, you know, what the outcome is going to be. You know, but still we had a lot of hope um, and, you know, our doctors and, and everybody was, you know. Saying you know you're unexplained you have great numbers you're you're gonna be pregnant by the end of the year and we really went into IVF round number one in January um, saying great like we're gonna have a baby this is gonna be great and our first retrieval um, we uh, you know sent off embryos we decided to do genetic testing out of pocket mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, we got none back they were all abnormal.
0: Okay. Wow.
1: And I weren't
0: uh, expecting that at all.
1: No. And you know, I think even to this day, like I'm crying a little bit now thinking about it because it was Mm
3: -hmm.
1: horribly traumatic for both of us. I remember I was at work when I got the call. Yeah. And the floor just pulls out from underneath you and you realize, Oh, this might actually not happen. Mm. And I think Mm -hmm. that was really, you know, February 2018 was when we realized, oh, this is, this is not going to be easy. And that's, mm-hmm. that's really when our mindset changed. Um, and you know, it's, it's continued to evolve. Um, our second retrieval, we ended up finding a diagnosis. We were okay. successful in getting a few embryos. Um, and we decided, uh, because of our diagnosis, it's, um, it's a genetic issue on my spouse's side. Um, but I, I i think we both um well, I know it's very important for me to communicate it as our infertility yeah. um it is it is a genetic condition on my spouse's side that causes it, but um you know i want I want babies with my my spouse mm-hmm. um, you know and, and so that's really important to me that i I usually refer to it as our infertility
3: mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it
1: just feels like collectively the right thing to do
2: yeah yeah I think think the analogy that I've used for folks is, you know, um, anyone that's familiar with the Peanuts comics, you know, will know the the line where Lucy is always convincing Charlie Brown to go kick the ball, the football. And each time, you know, he's been fooled, um, you know, 50, 100 times before, and she's always able to convince him. And at the last moment, she always pulls it away. So I think, for Mm -hmm. me, that that kind of summarizes our journey in that each each additional round, in addition to being therapeutic in and in a treatment, is also diagnostic, and so mm-hmm. you learn more about your odds. You learn more about the probability of success. You learn more about what sustained failure looks like, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's it's challenging uh, because in so many ways, I mean, you try to move forward, but in so many ways, it really. It's uh, it's pushing a pause button on so many aspects of your life.
0: Yeah. You're just waiting, you know, that waiting of not what's what's you don't know what's next or how long it's going to be. Yeah. And I like the way you describe it as kind of almost like pulling out the rug out from underneath you. You know, I think of that when you talk about Charlie Brown and you know, you get so far and you're willing to do it again. You're willing to try again. And then once again, it's pulled away from you for some unknown reason or for some new, you know, uh, different reason that, but then you also describe layers that you discover. And when you talk about those layers of uncovering what you've learned, what else, what would you say emotionally and as a couple or either, or, uh, what layers have come up for you over the years?
1: So one thing that's been really important for us is we, we've continued, um, Uh, we've done seven retrievals in total most of them have failed um Mm. uh, we um the let's see july 2018 we got one embryo from a retrieval and i was on my birthday and i just remember just crying sobbing and relief but also in just misery Mm -hmm. and they continued to fail then we had um You know, infertility does a really good job of ruining dates. (laughs) Um, We found out we were um, spontaneously pregnant New Year's Day, um, and that was um, shocking and really scary. We lost that, and then we then retrievals continued to fail, and we experienced a complete, a full over a full year of interventions and just really grief-stricken moments, just every other month
3: Mm -hmm. for a year.
1: And Mm -hmm. I think really what that taught us is that, um, grief is so individual and Mm -hmm. your partner, while you can be so well aligned, um, they're going to experience it differently.
0: Mm -hmm. That's true. And
1: yeah. And, and grieving as a couple is, uh, I think it's, it's It's one of the most challenging things that you can go through, just mm-hmm. you know processing grief and mm-hmm. figuring out how to come out on the other side of that together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I, I think it really uh, the the failed rounds the miscarriage, you know, you feel shattered and you have to pull yourself back together.
2: And mm-hmm. then every
1: rebuild, you're 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 building yourself back up differently, right? You've, you're yeah. learning new coping mechanisms via therapy you know, you're you're talking with people in your support group, you know, you're, 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 um, you know, you're pulling yourself out of, of that. um, I call it like a grief cave Mm -hmm. where you just you've You have to build the ladder one rung at a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's incredibly important to check in with your spouse or partner, loved one, and um, make sure they know where you are. And that you're communicating where you're at. I think that I think that was the biggest struggle for Tom and I.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and for me it was really um discovering, I mean, I agree with everything Renee just said, but um discovering that I that I process things typically on a two to three month lag in almost <laughs> <Yeah>. all <laughs> aspects of my emotional life, always apparently. So Yeah, uh, that's what I was gonna ask
0: is, yeah. is yeah. did you notice that you were ahead Renee and that maybe when you were feeling the grief that Tom wasn't always feeling it exactly the way you were at that moment?
1: I don't think we've ever really felt the grief the same way. And I think that's, that's normal and, you know, Mm -hmm. to be expected. It's just not something that, you know, people tell you about.
3: That's right. You Mm -hmm. you,
1: you talk about grief and, you know, it's like this nebulous thing of someone Mm -hmm. being sad and crying and, you know, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but they don't talk about like how that impacts an individual. And so, you know, as for me, you know, when I was, um, miscarrying and my hormones were going back to normal, I remember there were times where I just would have this out-of-body experience and I knew I was grief stricken, but I also knew like, wow, Renee, you're acting pretty, (laughs) pretty, pretty crazy. Um, and and tom had he he was going through his own grief and he had to process that but there was this there's this physicality that 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 happens with uh women that are going and uh, you know enduring infer- infertility treatments and uh i think it certainly uh for some can can speed up that process compared to their partners mm-hmm. yeah, and, yeah and
2: we had to set a lot of boundaries i think too, early on um And I don't know how long it took us to fine tune them, maybe to this date. (laughs) But, (laughs) uh, you know, the boundaries on, you know, telling Renee, hey, I cannot, I know this is, you know, you're involved in Resolve group and and you're helping other women through this infertility journey. And you're talking about their their events and you're processing our own infertility and you want to talk about that. But there are a, a number of occasions where I had to tell her, hey, I can't, I can't talk about this i can't focus on it. it it's overwhelming uh to me and you know it i think it reflected the lag that i had you know i am typically um very internal on in how i process my emotions and i have to um sort of sit with them for a while to make sense of them and so yeah. i think we we definitely discovered that on this this yeah. journey
0: that makes sense and you know i was gonna say it's what what can be hard and it sounds like you might be describing this is when You know, pretty uh, stereotypical male versus female way to respond to emotions, which is so. I think a lot of people identify with it, Um, but saying that it's not always the case. Sometimes it's it's really very individual. But when a man takes a little bit longer to process and maybe is less less emotive about the process. For two reasons. One, they are taking longer to process. And two, they. Um, many men tell me they really want to stay and appear strong for their wife. They don't want to upset their wife. So they're very much trying to hold it together. And oftentimes do that by distraction and sort of disassociating from the emotional part of it. And then the woman feeling very emotional really needing to talk about it, needing to work through it and feeling that intense emotion um, I know my husband and I went through this, you know, sometimes when I was feeling very intense emotionally, he was almost needing to distract from it and to detach from it in order to cope. Uh, and and that was really just him being in a different place than me, which made it hard, really hard at time when we both probably felt like our each other's reactions was actually driving each other away in a way. Um, can you guys identify with part of that or...
1: Yeah, certainly part of it. Um, you know, I, I certainly identify with the pendulum swing of um, getting back into infertility treatments when we started, you know, would start a cycle. Um, I would, um, I've would i always um, stepped back more into my support groups and, and started talking about it more and making sure it helps me process my feelings. And it also makes me feel like I'm part of a collective community. Um, and in the beginning, you know, we really had to. We struggled on um, figuring out how, like, well, well, what's the right mix? And then also, um, you know, because I didn't, we struggled with, you know, okay, so he needs space, so I would pull away and give him that right. And then at the same time, then we're feeling that there's distance between us, and so we had to learn how to give ourselves just more, more um, grace during uh, treatment, especially. Um, and you know, he just would start to say, you know, Hey, you know, uh, you know, do you need time, you know, to talk with, you know, your support group friends right now, you know, like, what do you need? And, um, and I would be clear with him, um, you know, on, on how I was feeling and, um, it became very apparent, you know, for me individually that, uh, at the start of a cycle, I had to deal with a lot of, um, anger. Uh, and that mm-hmm. would come out in, you know, in, like, in patients um, and like
2: mm-hmm. being
1: carpool on the way to work. And I would be so irritated about everybody around me. And it took a while for us to be like, oh, this is displaced. Like this is displaced grief. This is me being, you know, having to process like, okay, I'm going to get back into this. And so we
0: certainly had
1: to work and, and find each other's um, boundaries.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and that I think that's good information for others to hear of that that happens in a relationship. Again, not knowing what's normal, and you know things are kind of moving along pretty smoothly until this happens, until infertility comes in the picture, and then you know it starts to cause some issues. I think that can be scary for couples. I think that can really be destabilizing for them just because having enjoyed that more peaceful time in their marriage and then having this happen, it's, it definitely, um, it's hard. I do tell my clients a lot. This is an opportunity for you to grow skills for each other that will last a lifetime. And that's the benefit is you do, they do last a lifetime in your relationship, but boy, it is not easy. It is a really a crash course in, in couples communication. And how would you say that, um, you know, in in terms of now looking forward as you continue on this path? Well, tell me, first of all, where are you at right now in the, in the process?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, because we have insurance coverage, um, you know, that's, that's dependent on, you know, your employer. And so we, um, because of our age, um, you know, we're, we're mid thirties, you know, we're getting closer to 40. And so we really wanted to focus on banking embryos. That was what was important to us um, we, we always dreamed of a big family. So, um, we, we ended up going through seven retrievals and, um, uh, getting to a good number of banked embryos and saying, okay, like this is, um, we need to stop. Right. Which, which that's a whole other conversation unto itself on feeling like you have enough. And cause it's such a finite number, right. When everybody else has that huge, like unlimited tries. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, So, you know, once we had that successful retrieval coming off of, you know, over a year of failures, um, we first, I think we really celebrated the, the feeling of having some hope again. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then we started to think about, okay, well, like what are, what are next steps? You know, what does that look like? And we really decided to take some time for ourselves, um, and make sure that, um, I I personally for my body I just needed some time and yeah. uh we just wanted to feel normal in our in like our marriage and, and not be you know struggling with with anything um and mm-hmm. so we're on a break currently and mm-hmm. um we're planning on transferring later this year okay. um and uh I I think that's going to come with its own set of challenges. We've, we've, mm-hmm. I mean, my gosh, we've been with a reproductive endocrinologist since mid-2017, and we have not transferred a single embryo. So wow. it's going to feel big and scary. Yeah.
0: No kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And what else would you – I mean, you just – you seem – you both have such a grounded – perspective of this and such an intimate knowledge of this process. So is there anything you would share, you would want to share with other couples out there that are also on the same path as you and, um, you know, just about the unknowns and the uncertainty and how you cope with that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, well, what I will say is, um, you know, uh, two things on like one on hope and then the, the other on, um, all well, three, I guess, hope, communication, and support. Um, you know, when you're going through this long-term, really and truly even short-term, um, you know, a lot of times what, what I've been told from people who, who don't really know under- and understand is you've got to have hope, you've got to have hope. And in the moments of darkness where you just, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel
3: and you don't mm-hmm.
1: know how this is going to go, because this, the longer you're on this path, the, the more acute, acutely you feel and understand that, um, these odds can be slim hmm. and, um, choosing to move forward with treatment alone, that's hope enough. You don't have to have anything more than that. Yeah. Um, and that, and that really carried me, uh, and Tom for quite some time, um, and, and knew that what we were doing, going through the two years of retrievals, um, That was what we 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 thought we um, were setting our boundaries and saying we will have done our best, and we might not get the outcome we want, but you know it's going to help us close that door. Mm -hmm. And then second on, um, uh, do you have anything you wanted to say on hope or like that?
2: Uh, I think for me, it's it's been um, the willingness to let go, Mm -hmm. to let go of what you thought your life would have been what you may have been planning on for your life and and really being open to the reality of of what's before you and and I think hope is critically important and I'm I'm an internal optimist but I think it's also important to accept and acknowledge the reality before you and be open to different possible futures in your life
0: yeah mm. Wow, that's so hard to do when you're in the moment. And I think that's you are able to do that because you've been in this for so long now. And that it's like, I think it's such a great perspective um, to, you know, that's the one thing that I do encourage clients is to try to let go of some things. But man, that is super, super hard to do. So the fact that you can say that and that you can do that on some level is, is really amazing it really truly is amazing so that's that's kudos to you for being able to do that and to help send send that message to others it's one thing for a therapist to say that to you but it's another thing when somebody's walking in those shoes right now to say that that's what they're doing in the moment that's way more powerful than anything i could say um so, and you're absolutely right. I think that letting go is the hardest part and that is grief because we know when we grief, when we have to let go and say goodbye to something, there ideas of what we thought would be. We're, we we are feel sad about that. But the more we can let go of that and embrace what's coming, then we can have that closure and acceptance. And um, you, you, that, does, that skill doesn't go away. Once it's with you, it's with you. Like it's, it's kind of permanent which is, it's like riding a bike. You don't forget you, you remember what you've learned and that helps you moving forward. So I know that it seems, it can seem a little bit blurry to people when you say letting go. Is there a way that you can think about maybe helping people to understand it more tangibly the way, maybe an example of what you did or thought even that that you changed in your mind or something along those lines? I mean, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, practically with this experience, it's been uh, you know, from the from the the very beginning of when Renee and I got married and actually looking back, a lot of a lot of our um conflicts, you know, just normal conflicts over a marriage have really implicitly been about children and family, whether it's about, you know, the career and and are we focusing too much on that and is that getting in the way of our other priorities, et cetera. Um for me, you know, when we first got married, it was, you know, we both came from smaller families. Uh, we now know why my family is smaller.
3: <laughs> because, <Yeah. laughs> we have this,
2: this wonderful issue that, uh, has a side effect of, um, smaller families, but, yeah. um, you know, Renee came from her immediate family is smaller. She's got, you know, uh, a brother, I have a brother and then an adopted sister. Okay. And, um, you know, for me, we saw, you know, uh, we saw, you know, family events with Renee's extended family, which is huge. So most of her um, aunts and uncles they had multiple children—three, four, and five children—and mm-hmm. um, I always wanted a larger family. That was a mm-hmm. very much a, a prominent reminder, and and so we had set this objective and a vision in our mind of, okay, we're gonna we're gonna check off the boxes, right? So we're gonna graduate college, we're gonna get this job. Um, we're going to lay a good foundation so we can be comfortable and get to know each other. And then we're going to, then we're going to check this last box, right. The mm-hmm. having a lot of kids. And I think it, I think it started, you know, Renee mentioned, we started, tried in 2015 earnestly. I mean, we tried off and on a little bit before that, but um, that was right around age 30. And for me that started clicking, you know, if you want four kids, you, you, you know, 30 is kind of a, blink your eyes twice and get started kind of time and so Mm -hmm. um for me it's been a progression and with each retrieval um sort of a chiseling away and a willingness to chisel away right so um Mm -hmm. uh, of that ideal in the sense that for the first few retrievals um you know I, I came to the the thought process of Oh no! We can still we can still do we can still do this, right? We can we can save up and we can get a surrogate. Um, we can, you know, um, uh, just keep trying, right? But there is a reality that that um, kind of intersects with that that whole concept of you know you're still getting older, um, the window is closing, and so you know on that analogy of. You know, if you're building a brick wall, and and that's kind of your vision, and and the the world around you is sort of chiseling away at that wall. At some point, you need to stop trying to patch the mortar and just accept, hey, mm-hmm. this is you know, this is is, is going to be what it is. And so over time, I allowed myself to start thinking about, um, you know, donor sperm and what would that life uh, be like.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: And so what is it like when, you know, you, you start a family and it's, it's not the family you envision, whether it's smaller mm-hmm. or, you know, whether it's, um, an adoption or mm-hmm. it's, you know, a donor, um, embryo or a donor egg or a donor sperm mm-hmm. and, um, you know, processing that is, I think important. And I think it's important at some point. I opened myself up to those thoughts. You know, originally I would, I would, I would find ways to try to achieve the original vision Mm -hmm. and I would find ways to say, no, this is still possible. Yeah. It's getting harder and harder, but we're really diligent. We can do it. Like we're, you know, um, somehow Mm -hmm. exceptional, but Mm -hmm. being open to those and then each time you open yourself up to that, it's, it is sad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't think we realized it until after we were out of it, but, you know, if you go out and you, you know, you look up, um, the definition of depression and all the signs and symptoms, I, I mean, I haven't actually done this, but I'm pretty sure we checked all the, box, all the oh, boxes. yeah. And I think that's
0: so common. Yeah. Yes. You
2: know, in, in retrospect, you think, oh my gosh, that, what, we did that for a year. Oh my mm. gosh. I had no idea that we, you know, we were so depressed. and. um and it's just such a heavy burden to try to lift a a future version of what your ideal is through this type of reality. And once Mm -hmm. you start letting go of that, I think it's a great pressure that, I mean, yes, it's sad and yes, there's a lot of grieving you have to process that, but as soon as you let that go, there's this process of, okay, it's not overwhelming anymore right okay. and now this mm-hmm. is just my future right and i can experience it
1: yeah yeah and like similarly to tom you know it was um um we we both are very goal oriented um
3: mm-hmm. we set a
1: plan and we stick to it and we will figure out how to get it done
3: and mm-hmm. this is
1: infertility is not something that you can really do that with
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, i mean i will say like we went through seven retrievals and so, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, in some respects, we did a little bit of that,
3: mm-hmm. but,
1: um, as we continued to go through them, um, I have a, I have an incredibly detailed spreadsheet, um, that <laughs> I started tracking
3: mm-hmm. and,
1: um, I would, you know, project the odds and, you know, uh, wow. go through and say, oh, I'm going to, I think I'm going to get this many embryos. It would be based on studies and grading. Wow and
2: and that's a good point i think I think for both Renee and I, one of our coping mechanisms, which we found helpful i don't know if it would be helpful for anyone but mm-hmm. we we are both incredibly intellectually curious, and so as we mm-hmm. went through additional failed retrievals, I mean I can't tell you how many um, how many peer reviewed studies I read uh, easily a hundred on wow. all manners of i v f and um protocols and success rates and outcomes, and for our particular genetic disorder, you know, what are all the implications of that, and how does that affect yeah. the probabilities? And having having that background and knowledge was just my, you know, you know, I think you only learn as much as you need to. And for us, I think we needed to learn a lot because we were just in it longer.
3: Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and I, to that,
1: you know, um, when I first, Started with retrievals. Um, I, I didn't have that spreadsheet with round one, so I didn't think I'd need it, and discovered that that was not the case. And you know, it, it, at the outset, I would look at that spreadsheet, and my anxiety, you know, was through the roof. I was pinning so much hope on those numbers and saying, "Well, we need we need this many, okay? You know, we need mm-hmm. we need to send off this many embryos to have a good chance at getting an embryo, right?" Mm-hmm. And as we progressed and through that, and I think really a lot of the the, the development on us um, starting to really truly acknowledge the situation that we are in and that this is just not something that we have control over was after our miscarriage, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I started to look at my numbers and and still very helpful. Um, if you're a numbers person, I found it very helpful to mm-hmm. to understand the probabilities and say, okay, you know, this is like. This is probably best case scenario. And then really started to have regular conversations with myself and say like, okay, you know, we might get zero from this. And I mm-hmm. started to, to normalize that. Um, and, and some of that was in part because of my support groups. And I was around also, a, a, I still am around a bunch of women that are going through this long term and you, your conversation starts to, to shift into okay well like what's the reality of these numbers and and and, and the the acceptance came with time for me you know yeah. it came with time of okay well you know like this we can't we're not going to be able to do my body can't do anything more than it's already doing Tom's mm-hmm. body can't do anything more than it's currently doing and mm-hmm. you know we have other options and so we had very clear you know conversations with ourselves we were mm-hmm. gonna stop at six retrievals and then our fifth retrieval failed. And I, I remember the day it failed, uh, just, it was truly awful. I think it was probably one of the worst um, failed rounds ever. It was, I think it was on Tom's birthday. We had gone to a funeral that day and we found out our retrieval had uh, failed on the same day. So
3: wow.
1: it was just really bad. And, and that was just when we were just, okay, um, let's do, I, I don't think I'm gonna be able to stop at seven. And we, we talked about that. Were we okay Mm -hmm. with that? Mm
3: -hmm. And, you
1: know, we decided, and and that was really the point where we just, we started to say, okay, we're doing this to close the door and Mm -hmm. know that we have done enough. We have tried enough. And I think that was really, you know, something that every couple has to, to process on their own. It's
2: Mm -hmm. the final letting go.
1: It's the letting go. And, and, and that, like the exhale and saying, okay. Mm-hmm. We we have tried enough. Yeah. There's always going to be someone that says, "Have you tried this?" and "Have you tried that?" and that's where those comments, you know, really raise my anxiety because you know they they just don't know what it means to say like, "Have you tried this?" Because yeah. the implication yeah. is that you haven't done enough, mm-hmm. and you know that's a deeply personal um, choice to
0: make. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but yeah. not knowing what you've yeah. been through, you know, I think you have just the way you speak about it and the insight you have about the um, feelings and thoughts that, that happen along the way is really helpful. And,
1: you know, all I can say is that um, we wouldn't be where we are today without Mm -hmm. the support um, that we found uh, via therapy, via support Mm -hmm. groups, uh, my fellow infertiles as I like to refer them to. And um, so community is incredibly important with infertility.
0: So true. So true. You're a great, great example of that and what you've done with the groups you're involved in. And do you want to share any of those or is that more private?
3: Oh
1: yeah. I'd, I'd be happy to share. Um, so uh, one of the ones that, um, that that I can certainly speak to is resolve. Um, you know, I, I, am in a couple of online support groups, uh, mostly private and since I share my personal details, I'm not going to share those, um, but I will say there are a ton of online resources, um, and, you know, it's important to find, like, I, I usually don't use this term, but like find your vibe. Um, yeah. you know, people have different ways of coping. Um, I tend to be, um, incredibly to the point. Um, I'm looking for, you know, realistic understanding, and I'm also looking for compassion. Um, and so yeah. that was important to me in my, uh, for finding, the infertility support group space online. Yeah. Um, and so you know for for people, if you don't feel like you're connected and you're looking for more, there's more out there. you know yeah. um, And you don't have to feel, uh, for me, um, what always bothered me is that um, there's just been such a heavy pressure to feel hope. Mm. And you don't have mm. to be happy and cheery about this. You don't have to be like, oh gosh, I'm really trying to stay positive.
2: This is mm. a really
1: hard thing to go through. It's yeah. changed Tom and I's lives forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, um, online it was great, but what also really helped and really turned the switch on for me of feeling less isolated mm-hmm. was finding an in person mm-hmm. support group. Yeah. Um, I found could that be more? Via, yeah. I found that mm-hmm. via resolve.org. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sent, sent the group an email and I went there. Um, you know, you can tell your story. Every group's a little bit different, but. I mean, I have found lifelong friends there awesome. uh, and I, I, um, I mean, it's, it's how I, we, I got the recommendation for your book, Jana. So, oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, from somebody in my group who read yours and said, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, this is incredible.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Um, That's great. Great advice. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Renee. You guys are amazing. Yeah. You really are. I can't wait to, I, I, I know we'll be in touch. I know we will. Awesome.
2: Thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you. And thank you for doing this. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at JanaRupnowLPC Rupnow, LPC, or follow three makes baby on Instagram. You can get a copy of my book and the companion workbook to three makes baby on Amazon. If you like this podcast, be sure to like, and subscribe. Have a great day.